It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. The other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. This is The Other Side of Midnight, a show that likes to delve into the unexplained and the unexplored. Somebody that has been exploring the unexplored for decades is uh, Preston Dennett. He is a MUFON field investigator and the author of dozens of books and more than 100 articles about UFOs and the paranormal. He has a terrific new book out called Not From Here, Volume 4, This Book is chock full of great anecdotes and well-researched history about UFO sightings and possible extraterrestrial visitations. It's a must-read, and it's a quick read. And uh, Preston's kind enough to join us again on the radio. Preston, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Hey, always a pleasure. Uh, Preston, let me. one of the areas that we did not get to explore the last time you were here is the idea of extraterrestrial hitchhikers. This is not something that may make sense to a lot of people because you think of people that might come from other planets as having all sorts of advanced technology, especially in the travel area. Who are these extraterrestrial hitchhikers and where are they hitchhiking? (laughs) I actually found quite a few cases. These are people who pick up a hitchhiker. Turns out this is not a normal person really at all. Uh, There's cases occurring over quite a large area. Here's one case which occurred in Arizona. This is actually from researcher Artie Sixkiller Clark. It was the case that really got me interested in this. A gentleman, a Native American by the name of Dakota, was driving towards Chinle, Arizona. This is a desert area, not a whole lot out there. And he comes upon a gentleman and thinking he's another Native American, stops to pick him up. It became pretty clear that he wasn't. He was wearing a white jumpsuit, had very pale skin, kind of whitish blonde hair, and was kind of acting peculiar, not saying a whole lot. But Dakota gave him a ride, and they're heading on down the highway when they come upon a craft, a UFO, landed in the center of the road. Of course, they come to a complete stop, and without any words, this hitchhiker gets out of the car, and walks straight into this craft. Uh, At this point, Dakota is pretty much unable to move, um, unable to quite figure out what's going on. Uh, But it's just moments later, this hitchhiker comes back out. There's another figure with him. 
and they proceed to take Dakota on board where he has a fairly lengthy onboard encounter. So that's your typical case. And I found quite a few. It was really surprising, mm. actually. I, I, I should say so. Um, one story that, uh, that we did talk about the last time you were here was the instances where vehicles, uh, cars, have some sort of an accident with a UFO. And one of the things that people may not fully appreciate, though, is that it's not just cars that have had these incidents. In some cases, it's boats and trains, right? That's right. Absolutely. Um, There's quite a few cases. uh, Well, not so many with boats and trains. There's definitely with planes and cars. I did find one case involving a boat, which was quite interesting. Uh, Interesting to me because this occurred in the area where I've done a lot of research into USOs. By that, I mean unidentified submersible objects. This is right off the coast of Southern California. I've documented some 150 cases, which is a lot of objects coming in and out of the water here. So this case, uh, which caught the attention of UFO researchers, occurred on February 5th, 1964, Hmm. when the Hattie D, which was carrying 11 passengers, was heading southward down the coast and struck something. And they did not see it, but they said whatever they struck was clearly metallic it made a metallic clang. There was no give to it whatsoever. It put a hole right in the hull of their boat, which sank quite quickly. They all piled into a raft and had to be rescued by the Coast Guard. Uh, but they insist whatever it was, it was not a log or anything like this. Uh, they could not identify it. So this came to be, they think, was a USO. I mean, that's wild. Um, (laughs) We have heard a lot of different stories about these UFO sightings not exactly being random. And these UFOs uh, tend to pop up in a lot of the same types of places in uh, different corners of the world. What are some of the places that are more likely to be the staging ground for a UFO encounter? Yeah, we call these areas UFO attractors, and there's quite a few of them. Some that might actually surprise you. One that really shocked me is graveyards. Hmm. Uh, I did not expect that at all. That's in a previous volume of one of uh, these books. But there's uh, 20, 30 cases from really well-known investigators like J. Allen Hynek, the father of modern ufology, part of Project Blue Book, but Ray Fowler, Jim and Coral Lorenzen. Uh, These are all people who are quite well-known in the field. So, yeah, I mean, that's one UFO attractor, but mines as well. Uh, Basically, gold mines, copper mines. There's a uranium mine in Carn City, Texas, which had an incredible encounter. So that seems to draw them in. Rocket launches as well. Uh, There's many, many accounts particularly at White Sands in New Mexico, where there was a lot of rocket launches. But I found, and this was really surprising to me, three cases uh, involving toy rockets. There was one case in upstate New York where the father was just launching toy rockets with his sons, and these UFOs showed up to investigate. So yeah, these are UFO attractors. Um, Airports, absolutely. 
There's a very famous case in 2006, Chicago O'Hare Airport, which there was an object hovering over one of the gates there. And pilots saw it, pilots in the air and on the ground, baggage handlers, tourists. It was actually photographed. It moved up so fast it punched a hole in the clouds. But LAX, as another example, has been visited repeatedly over a period of decades, at least 10 times. So these are UFO attractors. Something is drawing them in. Do you have a theory as to why UFOs tend to gravitate towards those uh, facilities, the, the ones that you just listed as UFO attractors? I only have theories. Uh, I have no... Well, share no, one. We won't solid. hold you to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, as far as graveyards, I'm wondering if uh, they're interested in genetic material, which can survive following death. Another researcher contacted me and says, you know, perhaps they're removing implants, which they are known for putting in people's bodies. As oh. far as airports, um, it's well known that they do seem to keep tabs on our technology, which would fit in with rockets as well. Uh, or perhaps they're just trying to show off. <laughs> this is something they do. They want people to see them. Researchers call this a display. And uh, that does seem to be... Exactly what's going on in some of these cases. Yeah, you have a whole chapter about these very intentional UFO visits where even prominent uh, people like politicians, world leaders um, are are seeing these objects. And sometimes they even take place in, um, you know, in national capitals or very heavily populated areas. It's not like they're exactly caught. Um, you know, in the middle of an empty field somewhere. Talk about that a little bit. The, um, you know, these the sort of high profile UFO sightings that have been seen, especially post-1947. Yeah, I think probably the most famous is the Jimmy Carter sighting in 1969. He was with 11 or more people. They all saw this very low level object glowing. And he bravely stepped forward and talked about it, reported it to UFO organizations, and felt like it was intentionally showing itself. That was 69. And pretty much every year or so after that, they are showing themselves to some fairly high-level world leader. In 1971, Wyoming Representative Malcolm Wallop had a very close-up sighting. Uh, Governor John Gilligan of Ohio saw one in 1973. It actually sent down a beam of light, very much again showing off. Uh, one year after that, another governor, Ronald Reagan of California, saw a UFO while flying over Bakersfield. So it's year after year. And What did President Reagan have to say, or President Carter for that matter, on the subject of UFOs when they were in office? You would think that that experience would... I don't know, lead them to maybe be more outspoken or dig a little deeper in terms of what the government already knows. What did they say publicly on this subject? Uh, well, not a whole lot. Uh, Carter did speak publicly about it. Reagan was very tight-lipped for the most part. However, he did grant an interview at one point and spoke about this sighting uh, in detail, actually, until the reporter actually asked him, are you saying you believe in UFOs? And that's when, according to the reporter, a look of horror came over his face and he realized that, you know, this was going to go public. 
He said, let's just say on this subject, I'm agnostic. But as president, he did make several very provocative statements about this subject, saying basically, what if there were some ET threat from beyond our planet? Wouldn't this unite all humanity? And he said that at least four different times. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, I think he's probably right. Speaking of what the government knows, what they may know, what they may not know, it was very interesting to me last week. There was a Pentagon press briefing, and they were uh, talking about all, all sorts of things related to national defense. And a reporter asked the uh, Pentagon spokesperson about this upcoming, this pending report on on UFOs. This is the question and this uh, spokesman's response. The Pentagon is working on a UAP report to Congress. I think it was due on Halloween. Um, has any version of that report, either classified or unclassified, been delivered? And um, if not, do you have uh, an ETA on when that might be sent up to the Hill? Yeah, thanks. So my understanding is that report is being uh, prepared by the Office of the DNI, Director of National Intelligence. So I'd refer you to them in terms of the status. Um, so I'm afraid I won't have anything further until until that report comes out. If I could just follow up, there's been some reporting um, that Chinese drones may be monitoring um, U.S. military, U.S. military operations. Has the Pentagon UAP office, I think it's called Arrow now, um, has it discovered that China is using drones to watch U.S. forces or gather information? As part of this process, UAP process. Sure. Um, I don't have any information on that uh, at the moment, but we'll look into that and come back to you. What was interesting to me about that is he uh, firmly kicked the can down the road uh, to the director of national intelligence and to that agency. And it led me to wonder what sort of one, what do these agencies actually know versus what they're telling the public? And two, what sort of interagency tension is existing? Uh, for instance, is there is the Pentagon and the director of national intelligence maybe not exactly on the same page with the information they have and the information they're poised to release to the public? Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. I mean, we've seen this through documents released through the Freedom of Information Act that various intelligence agencies within our government are sort of wrestling with this and are very much compartmentalized. So we have the NSA and the FBI and the CIA and, of course, the Navy and the Army and the Air Force all doing their own separate studies and not exactly sharing. NASA is now forming a research study group. Uh, I think they are forming organizations to sort of allow more communication between these agencies. But it's clear that they are not telling us the whole truth. Um, each time they speak on this subject in the congressional hearings or what have you, uh, they're pretty much being caught in lies. Uh, just have to pick up a few UFO books and you can track this pretty easily. Uh, so you believe the government actually does know the score? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they know exactly what's going on. They know this is not Chinese drones or any foreign country. Uh, they have absolute conclusive proof. I'd say that that's fairly well substantiated from hundreds upon hundreds of whistleblowers who are fairly high placed within the military industrial complex. I mean, I've interviewed some myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty clear they know a lot more than they're saying. 
Uh, we're talking with Preston Dennett. His new book is Not From Here, Selected UFO Articles, Volume 4. It's a fascinating book. Even if you're a skeptic and you're not ready to believe in this stuff, uh, there are some really interesting examples in here of what's gone on and stuff that will uh, really make you think. I'll tell you, Preston, one of the things that made me think, I've heard about a lot of the things that we've been describing, the common areas that UFOs tend to appear, the uh, issue of UFO implantation, uh, the abductions. I have not heard a great deal until I read your book about... Uh, people levitating and these folks levitating after these UFO encounters. Tell me about that. How does this generally go and how common is this levitation among abductees? I think a lot more common than we realize because it's not something you really want to talk about. (laughs) There's a lot of eye rolling when you mention something like this. Uh, But certainly we do know that people who have extensive encounters are to a certain degree spiritually transformed. And we'll start having a wide variety of paranormal events, everything from telepathy to clairvoyance, out-of-body experiences, mediumship, healing, and so forth. And yes, this includes physical levitation, as strange as this sounds. Uh, levitation, by the way, does appear in all cultures. Hmm. There's hundreds of cases that are fairly well verified. It's been proven in a laboratory setting. I wrote a whole book about levitation separately to this. So that's how I kind of got interested in it, because I heard a case from Jacques Vallée, who's really one of the pioneering researchers in this field, who interviewed a medical doctor who had a very close encounter, and in the weeks following this encounter, twice spontaneously levitated. He is, uh, for people that are not aware, he's the basis for that motion picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? Uh, In part, he and J. Allen Hynek, yes. Uh, So he's definitely one of the first people, first scientists, I should say, who took this subject seriously and is still, to this day, studying it. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, he had a case. I know Whitley Strieber, who's very well known in this field for for the book Communion and others, also had a spontaneous levitation experience. You know, Whitley's been on this show, and uh, I did not realize that. I'm going to have to ask him about that next time he's on this show. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is a thing. I have my own cases. Uh, Stephen Greer, also very well known, reports two instances of this. Bud Hopkins, a pioneering abduction researcher, had several (laughs) cases. So, yeah, it's a thing. Preston, we're going to have to end it there. I really appreciate you always being so generous with your time and so willing to come on in the wee hours of the morning. Let's do this again soon. Good luck with the book. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. The book is called Not From Here, Volume 4. Preston Dennett is the author. You can search it on Amazon or wherever you enjoy ordering your books. 800-848-922. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, that's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 